Uh, good morning. <laughs> you guys are here to learn about porn on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it's funny, it's whenever I, I, I teach at our summer conferences and whenever they, uh, on, on pornography, and uh, usually when other faculty hear what topics I talk on, they're like, oh, so you draw, <laughs> drew the short end of the straw on that one. Um, but I suppose so. Uh, but let me, let me pray before we, before we begin, because this is a big, heavy uh, topic. Uh, so let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we come before you uh, this morning just asking that you would give us all uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, that we'd be receptive and open to the Holy Spirit's guidance and leadance, uh, leading. Uh, may, you, uh, may you give me the words to say, and may those hearing, uh, may you give them hearts to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, so yes, this morning we'll be, we'll be talking about pornography. Uh, we'll start off this session just kind of doing a big high flyover view just on how big it is in our culture and how accessible and available and, and it's how it's finding our, our young people because I think it's important to know how big in size the scope is to then kind of, okay, now what do we do about it? So we're going to fly pretty high this morning and then we'll, we'll kind of bring it down. But, um, but we will kind of be, we will be having a kind of an honest, raw, real, frank conversation about it. I don't think it does anybody any services if we we don't uh, address it with honesty and seriousness. Uh, and so there could be some things that are really heavy and really hard as we dive into this. Um, but again, I think it's better to know than to kind of say, ah, I didn't know it was as bad as it was. Um, so we won't dive much into the depth of you know, people struggling with porn addiction or porn use. Uh, there will be themes and threads that will be probably intertwined as we talk about it, some things that you'll pick up as you're listening but that's not the intent of, of this morning uh, or, or tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, it's mainly, as, as Holly said, for the parent, for the grandparent, for the people, the aunts and uncles, for uh, the ministry workers, for the people who are mentors. Uh, and pretty much when I ask this question to students at our summer conference, and I've spoken to thousands of them, and when I ask them how many of you either struggle with pornography or you know somebody struggling with pornography, uh, and they raise their hand and without fail, every single time, every single hand goes up. So it is affecting everybody. Either they are dealing with it or they know somebody close to them who is dealing with it or connected to it somehow. And so in, by proxy, it affects all of us whether we know it or not. Uh, so it's an important thing. Uh, but my hope in this time is to show you guys this, the, the, the times have changed in, in the pornography culture that we've gone from a, a protection mentality, which we ought to still be protecting our young people, but now it's, it's moving towards preparing, preparing them for when they'll see it. I was at a conference with Josh McDowell, and, and he said, the question is, is not, will my kids see porn? It is, what will they do when they see it? Uh, and that's where all data, everything is trending, that everybody will see it. Now, are they prepared to handle it when they do? Uh, the season, we need to be protecting, yes, but we also need to be preparing. Uh, and so that's the hope in this, is that that mindset slowly changes from protection to preparation. Both are important, but we need to, we need to begin preparing. Uh, and this is new for me, uh, as well, talking to my kids. I've got a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a four-year-old. I talk to teenagers, which is a little different. So a lot of this with the young people, I'm, I'm learning as I'm going, uh, and it's not something I want to shy away, because I've had many conversations with students who have had the last five, ten years looking at porn from the age of 10 or 11 or 12, and they're 17, 18, and this has been 
the issue of their teenage years uh, has been this struggle and this issue. And so I, I'm not going to shy away from it with my kids, and I'll kind of talk about that next week and a little bit this week. But it is something, just so you know, I'm still, I'm figuring it out, but I'm, I'm learning and I'm growing because I don't want that for my kids, if, if at all possible. Um, so, so we're beginning that conversation. And, and at the end of the day, the reason is I would rather control the narrative of what they're learning about sexuality and sex than the culture, because they well learn about sex, whether it's coming from me or it's coming from school and media and everything else that's out there. I would rather be the one to introduce the conversation and continue the conversation with them. Uh, and another question I ask the students in the summer conference is, uh, how many of you have had any type of sexual conversation with your parents? And these students are 16 to 22 is the general age range, with the majority of 18. And about half the students raise their hand. And these are generally, our students are generally conservative Christian students, many of whom you would be sitting next to in the pew or you know, sitting next to at church. Those are the type of students that we generally attract. And we ask them, how many, or I ask them, how many of you have had this conversation? About half of the hands go up. And I say, great, great. How many of you have had this conversation more than once? About half of those hands go down. So now we're looking at about, you know, maybe 30, 25, 30% of the students have had more than one conversation about sex with their parents. And then I ask them further, how many of you, has, has it been an ongoing conversation that you don't really know when it began, uh, nor is it ending anytime soon because your parents, it's just, it's just a part of the family culture to discuss this. About another half of the hands go down. So about 12 to 20% of our students are having, this is more just me asking, so I, I don't know, but only... A small number are having ongoing conversations about sexuality and sexual things. And the problem is, they are seeing so much on TV. They are seeing so much in music, in movies, on the phones, on their apps. I mean, it's everywhere. They are getting bombarded with sexual ideas day in and day out. And if we're only having one or two conversations with them over the course of their teenage years, which narrative will win out? over the course of time, and if, it's, and if our conversation is more don't, 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 because you know, you'll, you'll get pregnant or uh, get STDs, you know, but then they see all this highlighted stuff where people are having sex and enjoying it and not having any consequences, and they see it time and time and time again, you know, again, what will win out over the course of a life? Um, and so it needs to be something, and, and we'll talk more about that next week, um, just uh, about practical application there. Um, so, so we'll dive into things. I'm going to assume, uh, just for the sake of um, just the audience, that everybody would probably affirm that pornography, viewing pornography is a sin, uh, that you know, viewing people having sex, fantasizing about it, masturbating to it, is not okay in the eyes of our Lord. If you disagree, we can chat afterwards, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to make that assumption that it is sin, uh, and we won't go down there. But but when we, when we try to define porn, I think it's, I think it's important to look at, look at a couple things. One, we get the name pornography from the scriptures, pornographos, which, which in Greek was, was the idea of uh, writing about prostitutes is where we get our, the, the word pornography from. But obviously pornography is now much bigger than written words about uh, prostitutes. And so when, when defining it, I think it's important to look at two aspects. One is what form does it take? What is the physical form of pornography? And the second is, what is the function? What purpose does it serve? So when defining it, what's the form and what's the function? Uh, the Barna Group with uh, the Josh McDowell Ministries recently commissioned uh, the Barna Group, like it was a multi-million dollar research on pornography. You can find all of their research in the book, The Porn Phenomenon. It's a fantastic 
Fantastic. I'll give you guys a, a list of resources at the end of next week. Uh, if you guys put on the email, I'm sure it'll get emailed to you. Uh, but the porn phenomenon, it's like 200 pages, lots of infographics, most up-to-date research, uh, even though the stuff is kind of getting out of date the moment it's you know, printed or put up somewhere. Uh, but anyway, they asked the question uh, of, of people who, you know, what, what is pornography? What, what function or what physicality does it take? And this is what they found, that 17%, they could click one, would say it's, it's sexually explicit. Another would, it, it displays intercourse. Another is displays sexual acts intended for the arousal of the viewer and contains full nudity. And this is about 75% of them putting them in this category. And I think this is pretty good, giving us a, a rough base on, on what form it takes. They then go on to ask the question of function. What purpose does it serve? Why do people view it? Why are people engaging and watching? And what they found, they could click multiple options. And what they found was that 63% of people viewing pornography do so for personal arousal, 33% out of the curiosity, fun, tips on their own sex life so they know what to do, boredom, and then 25%, so one in four, to set the mood with a significant other so they watch this stuff. Uh, and this is culturally. This is not, uh, um, you know, it includes Christians and non-Christians. This is just culturally what they're saying. So I think a good definition of what pornography is is printed or visual media of a sexually explicit content for the intended purpose of arousal is why, what and why it is. Um, we are, uh, right now, we're going to jump into some, some bigger, larger numbers about how big the scope of, of this issue is. Uh, and before we do, recognize two things. One is it's, um, it's growing, uh, sadly. That the numbers I put on here, for, I just updated most of them about two weeks ago from last year, the last time I gave this talk, and all the numbers grew. Um, and so even just the numbers I put up there are probably already out of date. Uh, recognize that. And then two, just as you see the numbers, just recognize that these are, these are people. That it, you know, when we see statistics and large statistics, it's easy to get overwhelmed not recognizing that these are people. Uh, these, are, these are real people. Uh, and grace, we need to, you know, as I see statistics that big, I just need to remember that grace exists to change stories and not statistics. When I'm, doing, when I'm talking to students, that the grace exists to change their stories, not to reduce these numbers, but one by one. Uh, focus there. So, um, so how big? How big is it? Uh, recently, one of the, the largest porn website every year does kind of its year in review, where they kind of collaborate all of their data. And what they found this last year is that 98 billion videos were viewed on just one website. It's the largest website, but only one website. There was 91 billion videos viewed. It was up three billion from last year because when I updated, it was 88 billion. Uh, if you you break that down, it's, you know, they get about visits, they get about 64 million visits per day. And this is just one site, not the whole of internet pornography, just one site, uh, which, is, which is huge. And if you break down the 91 billion, it's about 13 videos per person on the face of the earth. Um, so each person, man, woman, and child, in every country, nation, around. Uh, it's, it's quite astounding. Uh, this one's a little out of date, it's 2013. But what they found in 2013 was there were 6.3 trillion pages viewed, internet pornography pages viewed on the internet in 2013. Um, and that was Business Insider, if I remember correctly. Uh, and again, I have no reason to believe that that number's gone down. In fact, I'm confident that it's, that it's gone up. Uh, it breaks down to about 17 billion uh, page views per day uh, on the internet. So each click is a page view. 
Um, that largest porn website found out that there was about 4.6 billion hours of video watched this last year. Just one website, 4.6 billion hours viewed. Um, and if you were to, the amount of data that was transferred uh, in the viewing of the video just from, from their site to the, the personal computer, the post, personal phone, would be the same as streaming music. So if you have just one song on loop or Pandora playing nonstop, it'd be the same as listening for 58,000 years is the amount of data that was transferred this last, this last year. Enough to fill 185 million 16 gigabyte iPhones and about 3 billion gigabytes of data. Uh, is what they found, just one website. And this is, this is, this is a huge number. It's a $13 billion revenue uh, industry. It makes about $3,000 per second, per second. Uh, they, they produce films about every 39 minutes. There's a, a new film being produced and completed. That's around 13, depending on the year, 13 to 15,000 per year. Hollywood, Hollywood produces about four to 600. And the porn industry is producing 13 to 15,000 per year. Um, you know, they make more money than these companies. Um, and they have more visits per month to porn websites than Netflix, Twitter, and Amazon. More people view porn websites than visit those places every month um, as a whole. So it's big. Uh, and the average age that a child, this is me as a child, uh, that, that sees it is, is they, they say about 11, even though numbers are trending downward and not upward, to where I've read reports that are even saying as early as 9. Uh, this is me when I was 10. Uh, this is when I found a stack of my grandfather's porn magazines at his house. Uh, I was intrigued by it. I took them into the bathroom, and I was, uh, uh, just didn't know. I was curious. I was disgusted. I was weirded. I knew it was wrong. That's why I hid it. That's why I didn't talk to anybody. And I ended up um, you know, kind of stealing some of the pamphlets out of it so I could take it home with me. And I brought them to school with me. And I showed my friends. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't tell them. And I, you know, I showed my friends. I'm like, hey, look, look. And we, we gave it a name called Leaf so that we could talk about it in code when we were in class or on the recess so nobody would know. I mean, we knew it was wrong. We knew it was not OK. But we were drawn and sucked in. And, you know, I never, I never talked to my parents about it, and, uh, and it continued on, this, this addiction to pornography, through, through college before I actually started working on it. And my parents found out, uh, probably in high school, and here's this boy who's been looking for five, six, seven years uh, of his life, and my parents found out, and their assumption, and we'll, we'll kind of get to this, this, this myth that we believe that, oh, boys will be boys, it's just a boy thing, he'll grow out of it. Uh, not really recognizing the times in which we live and how the internet would make things far more complicated to overcome pornography addiction than it's ever been before. That it's not the same apples to apples correlation. And so, but I, but I see this picture and I show students this, and you know, some of you probably have kids this age. And you know, what business is, does this, this child have seeing hardcore pornography? Not you know, Victoria's Secrets or swimsuit you know, uh, sports illustrated. I'm talking hardcore stuff. And, you just the innocence that's taken from, from a lot of youth in this, this country is, is, is disheartening and saddening. You know, I should be, you know, it's kind of like the sandlot. I should be getting into good kind of, kinds of trouble, not viewing porn and ignoring my friends. Uh, you know, and so, so that's, that's the hope, and that's why I'm sharing this, is that we can protect, you know, even if it's one, two, three kids from, from this sort of a thing uh, would be good. So the Barna Group and, and their research uh, also found that 49% of teenagers, 13 to 17, come across pornography at least once a month. 
that's not actively seeking it out. That's on the computer or on their phone doing homework, and porn finds them. So 50% of 13 to 17-year-olds, porn finds them at least once a month. And that number jumps, as you see, to 79%. If you say if it happens in the last six years or the last year, 80%, 8 out of every 10, 13 to 17-year-olds. And if they don't have parents they can talk to, or people older, wiser, mentors in their lives they can talk to, who are they going to talk to when they come across? Because everything I've heard and read and on when first exposure is traumatic, it's scary, it, they don't understand it, but if they don't have the, the, the ability to talk to their parents, who are they going to talk to? Either they're going to keep it to themselves or they're going to talk to friends and peers who <laughs> they should probably not be talking to these things about. Um, and then about one in three actively seek it out, meaning they go on the internet to view pornography. Uh, one out of every three 13 to 17-year-olds. And then you, if you, you look at the demographics for 18 to 24-year-olds, that number jumps to 71% of young adults, it finds them once a month. And it's nine, uh, 90% if it's less than once a month. And then one out of every two 18 to 24-year-olds actively seek pornography out in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so it is a large, large problem. And it's finding them. Um, but, but pornography is also changing. Um, it's changing quite a bit. This Porn 2.0... It, the attitude towards pornography is changing, uh, where adults, um, probably 30, 30 and up, one in two would say pornography is wrong, whereas young adults, teenagers, one in three would say pornography is wrong. So it's a reduction of about 25% or 20, I, I don't know, math's not my thing, so it's a reduction, <laughs> how's that? Uh, it's less than, uh, but it's far more accessible than it's ever been, and when students talk about it, it's talked about at the very best with neutrality. And so it's being talked about as normal, as just something we do. Here, look what I saw. Let me send you the link. You know, and just talked about you know, just as, as another thing of your day. And again, this is culturally. Christian culture is a little bit different. Um, but culturally, this is how it's being communicated uh, you know, by their peers. And, and it's just not talked about as being wrong in any way, shape, or form. But it's also changing in the fact that it's becoming more user-focused, meaning the people viewing it are actually creating it. It's no longer being done in Hollywood or these other places, but they are doing it through, through Snapchat, through Instagram, through sexting, and all these stuff that, that what they found is that 62% of adults have received a naked photo from somebody they knew. That it was of them. You know, either they, they received it of the person they knew. And it was generally what they found, 79% of those came from a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So the girlfriend and boyfriends are sexting each other back and forth at a, at a very high clip. And it's about 40% of those surveyed had sent images. So they were the ones sending images, 40%. Um, and it's 75% of those in the 40% category were sent to a boyfriend or girlfriend. The number jumps to 90% if it's friends. So it's friends creating and sharing amongst themselves is the primary um, changes that, that they're seeing. And females as, uh, are far more likely to send and receive such texts by 15 to 25%. Uh, they don't know why that is, uh, but that's the research, what the data showed. And so they don't know why women are, or females are, are more likely to send and receive texts, but that's just what the numbers are showing. Um, so what we're going to transition to now is, is just kind of looking at a few myths that we believe or the culture the, at large or the young people believe about, about pornography. One is, um, this is probably, is, is, is that only guys view porn. It's just not, not true. It's not true. Uh, porn does not discriminate. 
uh, porn. You know, if Satan can get his hooks on anybody, he'll, he'll take it, man or, or, or woman. Uh, it does not discriminate. And, and if you think about it from a pornographer's perspective, they've pretty much maxed out what they could do on the guy end of things. They've got the guys hooked, line, and sinker. So if they want to grow their revenue, grow their business, who are they going to go after next? Women. And women have been on the front lines of fighting against pornography, whether it's you know, Christian women you know, or, or feminists uh, have been very strong pushing against pornography. So if they can render the women useless in fighting against it, they've got just a huge market. So they're, they're making a concerted effort to go after women. In fact, uh, May of this last year, I remember it was May 21st, I was on Facebook, and the largest porn website was offering a $1,000 scholarship to any woman, an essay, for a woman who viewed porn and uh, how it made their sex life better. They were giving a $1,000 scholarship to this, and it was trending on Facebook, meaning I clicked on the article, and I was one click away from the largest porn website on the Internet. And it's been trending four or five other times. I've seen it in the last year for various things. And when it's trending, it's, if your kids have Facebook or, you know, you're one click away from the hardcore pornography. The largest website on the internet is just right there. Um, so stats on gender use. Um, we find is 27%, so one in four women seek pornography out. Uh, 40% do so at least once a month. And 13% of Christian women view pornography. And this, was, this is about probably a year old, so I, again, I, I imagine the numbers have increased a, a bit on this. Um, but we need to stop thinking about this as a guy issue. It's not. Uh, I've read accounts of, of girls who have struggled with pornography, viewed pornography, and some of the most, it's, it just, it, it, it's just a, it creates a cycle of shame. If, if our attitude as a church is like, oh, it's only a guy issue, well, how does that make a woman feel who's viewing it and, and, and seeing it? It makes her feel less than. It enhances the shame, enhances the cycle, and who are they going to tell if they feel ashamed and they feel this way? And so we need to, we need to not talk that way, and we need to recognize our daughters are capable of this too, and that it's not just for our sons that need to have this, but our daughters too. In fact, um, 60% of girls are exposed to pornography by the age of 18, and 18% of young women use porn at least once a week. So one out of every five use porn at least once a week. And the same statistic states that 71% of teenage girls hide their online, online activities from their parents. Um, you know, to, to be clear, this is not like Fifty Shades of Grey or romance novel type stuff. This is the same stuff the guys are viewing. It's the same stuff. I had a girl this session. It's usually actually the girls who talk to me every time I give this lecture to about 200 students. Uh, it's always the girls that come talk to me afterwards and just thanking me for actually saying this section. This section does much for their hearts and their souls because it's recognized that they're not ashamed or weird or off, you know, that, that they are sinners just like each of us. And... And so, but one girl in particular came and talked to me, and she said, um, she said, with just tears in her eyes as she's coming, she's like, I was on, about three years ago, I was on Pinterest, and I was looking at sunflower dresses, and all of a sudden there was a really erotic photo on it, and I turned off my computer, I was disgusted by what I saw, but over the course of two or three days, two or three days, that image kept popping into my mind, I kept thinking about it, and curiosity won out, and I clicked on it again, and it led me down a three-month rabbit hole into viewing hardcore pornography. And she said, I was able to stop at that point, but I haven't told anybody. And, th- and that was three years ago. She had been living with this shame and this, this fear and all of this for three years. And this girl was 18 at the time. You know, just uh, all that time was sapped and stolen and taken away. 
Uh, and so she finally did, and just you could see the, the burden lifted. Um, but we need to, we need, how we talk about pornography is vastly important. It's no longer uh, just a guy issue. And it never really was, um, but guys are more prone that way. But it's, it's, it's an issue that affects us all. So how we talk about it matters. And how, if we have daughters, it needs to be brought up as well. Um, the second is, uh, you know, a lot of this culture believes that porn does not hurt anyone. It's just me doing it in the privacy of my own home. It doesn't hurt anyone, uh, which is just simply not true. But they so believe that lie that Barna found out that this generation, 18 to 24-year-olds, view not recycling as more of a moral failure than viewing pornography. One out of every two 18 to 24-year-olds would say not recycling is a greater sin than viewing pornography. Because they're viewing pornography, this generation, as just me doing this by myself in my room doesn't hurt anyone. Recycling is a global, communal thing. It hurts a lot of people. And so I think that's probably what goes into the thinking. But that's how low they view pornography as, as, a, as, a, as an effect or as a, as a problem. And we're going to watch... Uh, how are we doing on time? Okay, we're good. Uh, we're going to watch a brief uh, video that, kind of, that goes into, uh, into the brain science and how... Pornography actually hurts the person using it, though they may not know it at the time. Uh, it's, it's good. It's about a three-minute clip. There are some things in it that I disagree with, uh, just more probably from a larger Christian worldview perspective. Uh, but the brain science, the neurology in it is, is good, and it's easy to understand. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I am not a science guy, so for me, like, oh, I get this. And I've tried to read some of these uh, books on neurology as it relates to porn use, and, and I can get through it, but it's like pulling teeth for me. Um, so this is, this is accessible. So, uh, so we'll watch it, and then uh, I'll talk a little bit after. All right. Um, so I think that the, it did a, did a great job just showing the effects that, that pornography has on the brain, the dopamine you know, is our reward center. And if all of a sudden they're getting these huge hits of dopamine through viewing pornography, masturbating to it, orgasming to it, it's going to vastly affect their brains, especially going through puberty when everything's just out of control. To have the inroads being brought that way is far more damaging and detrimental. Um, In fact, I've seen things that that show uh, drugs like heroin and cocaine, the spike on the the dopamine hits... um, are equal to that of pornography. In fact, pornography, usually those kind of spike up and then come down, whereas if you don't orgasm, you kind of still spike, but then you kind of level. So the the actual usage and the actual dopamine is slowly, continually being released in your brain, and it's it's creating this, this, as I said, this vicious loop of desiring more and more and more because it's so good that simple things like sunsets, sunrises, great conversations, completing a goal or task become boring they're not good because they can't hit the level of dopamine that pornography and orgasm can. And so they're rewiring their brain to train themselves for that because that's what physically, neurologically, what is happening. Um, Anthony Kiedis, uh, anybody know who Anthony Kiedis? Any, anybody? Oh, so, yeah, okay. You're, we're probably the same age. Um, he is uh, the lead singer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, big band in the 90s, and they're still around, I think, doing stuff. Uh, and what they, it, he was a heroin addict, and he checked himself into rehab for his heroin addiction, and he said this a handful of years ago uh, when he was out of rehab. When I finally got a computer, I discovered this limitless world of pornography. I realized the same feeling I was having was the same I used to get when scoring drugs. Sex can have a dark side, and I actually had to make a commitment to myself to stop. 
So when he, he, the feelings he got, the, the chemical reactions that he used to get when scoring heroin was the same as he started going into the world of pornography. Uh, he saw that connection and it scared him and he had to stop um, before things got out of control. One thing the video doesn't touch on that I think is very important too is oxytocin. I'm pretty sure if you've had kids, you're probably at least aware of oxytocin. I, came, I think I came aware of it during our first birthing, like the birthing stuff, and <laughs> I had to watch all these birthing videos. It was gross. Um, my wife is very pregnant, so I'm going to have to relive it again. Uh, in fact, it could be today. We'll see. Um, very close. So, uh, but oxytocin is called like the bonding chemical, the bonding drug, and it's released many times through life, but the three primary times it is released is, one is um, during childbirth. When the baby comes out, they... Uh, <laughs> In sign language, there's a couple ways to do childbirth, and I always laugh because it's like, that's one way. It's very vulgar. Anyways, uh, not vulgar, but eh, podcast, you won't see it. Sorry. Um, But uh, giving childbirth, and that's why they want the naked baby to lie on mom's bare chest because both are releasing oxytocin. It actually bonds mom and baby together. The second time there's a larger amount released is, is during breastfeeding. When mom and baby are breastfeeding, there's a lot of oxytocin. Again, bonding mom and child together. The third time is during sex. Um, it, it, a lot of oxytocin is being released during sex and orgasm. And so um, it's, almost, it's funny. Every time I, I tell this to students and think about it, it's like Scripture's been saying that the two shall become one flesh. If you're you know, having oxytocin released by having sex, you're actually bonding to the person, and two are really chemically, neurologically becoming one flesh. It's like, a, uh, it's like science is finally catching up to what Scripture's been saying for thousands of years. Uh, you know, but when, when young people are watching porn on their computer, oxytocin is another chemical. There's a handful of others as well as indoor, uh, dopamine. But oxytocin is being released. And they are actually, it's actually happening that they are bonding sexually to their computers. That their, Time Magazine did an article about this new phenomenon called porn-induced erectile dysfunction. This was in March of 31 of last year. That, that young people, there's many, many accounts that young people are having where they are viewing pornography um, often, and then they go to their girlfriend to have sex with their girlfriend, and they, they can't get an erection. They go home to their computer, and they're just fine. And what they're finding is the oxytocin and, and many other things, they're actually being sexually aroused by their computer and not people. And there's many young people that, that are having this effect um, that, that are in their 20s because they, because they are literally kind of becoming one with their computer. Um, so it hurts the brain. It also hurts the heart. You know, if you think about the endorphin and the dopamine, it's going to affect their, their, their behavior as well, that many people who view pornography at a larger clip lack motivation, lethargic behavior. There's a new phrase going around college campuses called procrastination, where people are late to class, they're late to work, they're late because they're busy viewing, uh, viewing pornography, that this is becoming a, a word. Um, and they're in a brain fog, there's emotional numbness, they just can't feel because their reward or their, their feeling center of their brain has been hijacked by viewing pornography. Uh, there's loneliness, again, if they're, if they're bonding to computer, they're not bonding with people. And so they're isolating over the course of time, slowly they're isolating themselves from people and real relationships. A negative feeling about behavior and chronic and negative feeling or thoughts about self. So guilt and shame are strong. Um, so it hurts the heart as well, and it, and it hurts people around them. If this is the behavior, whether it's in class or whether it's in friendships and relationships, it hurts, it hurts everybody else around. Um, the second, where are we at on time? Am I, 
I can get excited when I talk to people, and so I'm okay. Um, the second thing I want to check is, is it hurts. I won't go into the depth on how it hurts children and how it hurts uh, from a, you know, it, it fuels child pornography. I, you know, and there's a lot of data and research that I can show you. I just don't want to go, go there, uh, as well as it, it fuels human trafficking. Uh, it creates a demand for human trafficking. And so it's, it's really hypocritical to be against human trafficking while viewing pornography because they work together. Uh, but the one thing I did want to highlight, because I think it's warping our young people's minds, is it's incredibly misogynistic. It hurts women. It hurts women bad. Um, more than we even know. Um, there was research done at, uh, with, in 2010 or 11, UCLA did a research of the top 304 scenes that were the most viewed. And what they found in this is that, this is going to be, this is probably the hardest, hardest section, uh, is that 88% of these films, of the top 304, contained physical ag- aggression, principally spanking, gagging, slapping, spitting, hitting. 88% of these films had this. 48% contained verbal aggression, prim- primarily name-calling. Uh, and I'll show a stat, but, but the perpetrators of this aggression were predominantly male, and the ones receiving this aggression were, pre- were by far more women. So they're showing women being abused, but the most shocking thing is that 95% of those being abused respond with pleasure or neutrality. And so they responded with pleasure or neutrality. So here's the, let me, let me skip over this. So, so you have 70% of the perpetrators are male, 30% are female, but the target gender of this aggression is women. And they respond with pleasure and neutrality, overwhelmingly. And if young men and young women are watching this, and then they start engaging in sex, what do you think they're going to think is the norm? That aggression towards women is normal, it's good, because women respond with pleasure and neutrality towards this. Women who view pornography think like, oh, it's okay that I'm being called these names. It's okay because that's what I'm seeing hours and hours upon end of viewing pornography. So it's warping an entire generation in their views of sexuality. Uh, to unhealthy extents. And, you know, and I've had conversations with students, I've read accounts where th- they've come up to me and said, this, you know, this makes sense for what has happened in my relationship. I've read accounts of you know, a young man who's viewing pornography, uh, they, they, remained, uh, they didn't have sex before marriage, but then when they started having sex in marriage, his expectation was this, and his wife's was not, and it threw things for a loop. And they had to really work through a lot of things that they didn't even, he didn't even know, you know because he had been so trained by pornography to view sex in this way. And so it's, it's really warping and changing uh, our young people's view of, of sexuality and healthy sexuality. Um, Zillman and Bryant did some research uh, where they, they wanted to see the effects of massive exposure to pornography. They've had three target groups. One target group watched four hours and 48 minutes. Another target group watched two hours and 24, and the other target group didn't watch anything. And so you have the three groups there, and what they found, and then they had them disappear for three weeks and then come back, and they asked them a series of questions. And I'm highlighting a few of those questions. One of the questions was, should we prevent pornography from minors? So should we keep it you know, from minors seeing it? Those that did not view pornography, 83% of them said, yes, we need to restrict this from minors. Look what happens when they have massive exposure to pornography. 36% said we need to restrict it. So their desire to restrict pornography, if they're viewing it, is less. They want it to be more accessible and more normalized. 
uh, they asked the question, do you support female liberation movement? Now, I know uh, that's, you know, we can get into the, the feminist movement, but, but the, the idea is the graph does the same thing, where those that did not view it were far likelier to support female rights or the feminist movement, um, whereas those had massive were less likely. And when they, they had uh, the male support, when they had females, asked females who viewed pornography the same question, you see the graph do the same thing. And they had these questions on different sexually deviant behaviors um, that were there. They, all the graphs do the same exact thing. They asked about incarceration for rape. How long should somebody be incarcerated? Again, those that had no exposure to pornography said men or women who commit rape should be put in jail for a longer clip than those who had massive exposure. It's warping you know, lots of things in our mind. The shocking thing about this was done in 1984. This research was done. Pornography has become more violent, more dangerous, uh, and it's far more uh, accessible and ready. They can't do this again because of ethics laws. I remember you asking me that question a while back. But it was ethics laws was the reason why they, they haven't been able to replicate this. this they don't want to force people to watch. And honestly, to find people that won't watch it for three weeks in between would probably be pretty difficult. Um, you know, at least that's, that's my two cents. Um, so I know, um, yeah, the, 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 last, the last little bit is, is the idea that, that you know, porn's been around forever. This is nothing new. Uh, it's just boys, as I mentioned earlier, boys will be boys. They'll just view it. What, what they don't recognize is, um, is that the Internet and Internet pornography has vastly changed things. It is not the same as magazines and VHS tapes. This was done by uh, Your Brain on Porn, there's, which is a good resource for neuro, the, the neurological science behind it. It's not Christian. Uh, it is not... Um, <laughs> uh, so there's lots of vulgar language, and there can be some triggers, so be cautious if you go there. But the brain science at this website is, is outstanding, a lot of research and information. But they had this graph where, you know, before this, you know, it was cost money to view porn. You had to be over 18, and you had to go to certain spots of town or the movie section. You were weird if you used, and the cultural trends have changed. I mean, it's far more accessible. You can be it's anonymous, and it's affordable, which are the three kind of stools for any kind of addiction. Those three things uh, need to be there. But the things over here, the genres, the variety, the you know, genres per session, novelty, screen pages, all that stuff, vastly it changes your brain wiring more because when you have a magazine, you can't really change things as quickly. We have high-speed internet. I mean, it's, it's like this, and, and it does far more to the brain. And so we really just don't know the effects it's having. Uh, I've heard it said many, many times, this is the largest unregulated social experiment in history. And I think that's true. As I study it more, it's the largest unregulated social experiment in history. We just don't know what's going to happen. Thankfully, three states... Uh, Utah last year uh, are providing funding to research pornography's harmful effects. And recently, South Dakota and Virginia just signed, basically, they passed a law to give taxpayer funding to research pornography's effects. So there is a wave of movement culturally, like this is becoming a very big issue for our young people. Um, and so it's not, it's not the same as it once was. Uh, I know this, you know, as I kind of work through this, and I know, you know, this, this, is, this is hard and this is heavy. Uh, and, and one thing I remember chatting to, to Glenn and Evan about, like, can I, can I promote this or can I talk about this at some point? And they were just both like, yes, yes. 
And I think that speaks volumes to the type of church that we're in, that they're, they're, this is hard and this is uncomfortable, but they want to, to address it. Many churches, when I tell people, like, yeah, I'm, you know, the last month and a half, I've been, you know, I'm preparing for this Sunday school. And they're like, what? You're doing what at Sunday school? Uh, you know, and, 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 and very, you know, just like, they just don't know how, or it's awkward, or it's weird, and so they don't. Um, but, but the willingness to press in and have an honest conversation, as hard as it is, it needs to happen because if it's not, our young people are just going to get washed away in it, like I've seen many, many, many young people. Um, so, but at the same time, I think it does give, it does give me hope uh, because, because it, it can allow us to actually begin having good, healthy, wonderful conversations about sexuality in ways that we haven't been having, that we can begin that now and really change the cultural trend. Um, recently there was an article, maybe a year or two ago, uh, by Rod Dreher. He wrote an article, Love in the Modern Age of Tinder. And it was about an uh, interview that he, had, that he listened to about an NYU student, Jordanian Naren, who won an essay writing contest about basically have love in the modern age of Tinder. Tinder, if you're not familiar, is, is an app. It's basically like a hookup app uh, where you look at somebody's picture on your phone and if you want to meet them, basically if you want to have sex with them, to be blunt, you swipe to the right. And if you don't, if you don't like the way they look, you swipe to the left. If you swipe to the right, that goes to that person's phone. They look at your picture and then like, oh, either swipe left or swipe right. Two swipe rights, you find a time to meet and you hook up. Um, and that's a very popular app right now with young people. Um, but in it, in it she, she talks about her, just her first sexual experience and how she had sex with her boyfriend and just all the way home on the subway just weeping, weeping in her pillow at night but weeping just because it just felt weird and different, you know, just, but weeping because it just wasn't good or it wasn't what she was hoping for, but she doesn't know another way. And she writes, the, or she says this in the interview, she says, we, we hook up, we sext, we swipe right, all the while we avoid labels and we try to bury our emotions. We aren't supposed to want anything serious, not now anyway, but a void is created when, when we refrain from telling it like it is, from our, our lot from allowing ourselves to feel how we feel. In a different time, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, they might have thought they were missing out on casual sex, she says. But since my generation has been saddled down with it, we kind of look to the past and say, wow, wasn't that nice? You know, and this is just a, a typical New York teenager or college student. And this is common amongst, amongst those that, that, that they, they recognize that it's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying. The hookup culture, the pornography culture, it's not filling them. And so I think there's a wonderful opportunity for Christians to begin telling a better narrative, a better story of sexuality. But we've got to work on our end of the street sexually as well. Um, you know, I, I know today's was, was a bit of a downer. Um, I, sorry. Uh, you know, but, it, but it's important to kind of go to, to understand the woundedness and the brokenness. And, you know, as we kind of see all these numbers and all of these things, you know, we, we, we ought not despair because um, despair is sin. I mean, uh, quite frankly, we have, we have Christ who is risen. You know, we have Christ seated on the right hand in the place of in the Holy of Holies, interceding on our behalf, giving us power through the Holy Spirit that we ought not despair. I mean, any one of us has no reason to despair because we are saved. We are regenerate. We have our lives speak to the testimony of what can happen. And if we can, we can talk to our young people and protect them from this and prepare them for a healthy understanding where, where love, as, as Shakespeare said in, in Much Ado About Nothing, let, um, let wonder seem familiar. 
let wonder, if we can paint a view of Christianity sexually where wonder seems familiar, it'll change. It'll change their hearts to where this narrative that they're getting from culture will not satisfy. They'll see the empty, the life, you know, another Shakespeare, it's, it's a life in the shallows, and they'll see that if we can do that. And so next week, um, we'll be focusing heavily on, you know, very practical application. How do we, how do we A, protect, but also how do we prepare? How, what are some things there? So, yeah, questions. So focus on the family slash focus on the family dot com slash having the talk. Right. No, no, no. Right. Yeah, great. No, I'll, I'll get that from you, and I'll put it down on the resource list that I'll, that I'll have, um, that Holly will get that if you guys have it. So, great, I'll check that out. Thanks. Yeah, no, and, and, and to reiterate, that's, that's where it's won, is in better stories. If we can't tell better stories, if Christianity is just a list of impositions, no's, and don'ts, you know, but yet they're seeing all this wonderful stuff in media, what's going to win? We need to be able to, to not only live in a way that wonder seems familiar, um, but that, that we're showing and talking and living in such a way that, that we draw our kids into that story and that narrative. And it's hard. And, and it's, you know, Lord, have mercy. Uh, and in prayer and on your knees and in the word. Uh, but that's, that's how it'll win out. Uh, not only for your own lives, but also for the lives of your kids. Um, any other questions? I don't know what time it is. I'm, I'm here for... Oh, good. We've got time. Great. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'll hit on that next week a little bit, too. It's, it's, it runs the same wiring, the same parts of, you know, it's...
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is. And some of those accounts I've read, people have left the industry and talking about life. I mean, the drug, I had, I had a slide in there, I decided not to go over it, but I mean, the amount of herpes, two-thirds of people in the industry have herpes. Uh, 12 to 28% have some other forms of STDs. 7% have HIV. And that was by Dr. Sharon Andrews, who they commissioned in the 90s uh, to, to study it when there was an HIV outbreak. And that was what her finding was. Um, and that's not even the drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the, the lives are, are destroyed. I mean, just a higher level of all sorts of other addictions and abuse within people there. I mean, it's, you know, I, yeah, read time and time. I read some of these accounts, and it's sobering. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which place is it? Heart to heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard. Of, I've heard of them. So, yeah. Right. No, I, and I think that was part of why I read kind of the Jordania Narin is, is it's just sexist. You know, they, they, you know, I would even argue, I've heard it said that, you know, a handshake means more than sex to many of the younger generation. Uh, they're just, they're just, it's just something that you do. It's just this, this idea that, you know, it's just, it's just sex. It's not, it's not a big deal. So again, it's, it's cheapening one of the, you know, and I would argue, and I'll, I'll make arguments for it next week, is that sex you know, the intimacy that, that involves in sex, you know, when you cheapen that, in many ways you cheapen your understanding of your relationship with God. That the intimacy in the marriage is a shadow, is not the end of itself, but it's, a, it's just a way that God allows us to see what intimacy with him c- can be and ought to be and should be. And that's why you can be single and still have a fully intimate, loving, robust, good life because Marriage is just a shadow kind of pointing to the intimacy we ought to have. And, and the key moment of that intimacy, much like Adam and Eve in the garden, they were naked and unashamed. You know, now we're clothed and shamed. But to be in a marriage where you know, you're, you're quite literally naked and unashamed you know, is the most freeing thing uh, to be known and, and, and loved and accepted. And again, it points to that. So if it's cheapened, you're cheapening you know, so many other things because it's, it's probably one of the, the bigger things that God uses to highlight our relationship with him. And that's, that's the sad thing is the most intimate thing, the most beautiful thing is then reduced to, you know, and again, as, as Shakespeare said, that quote I love, it's a, it's a life in the shallows and they just don't know it. Um, so again, I, I think that's where the positive narrative, much like you know, the Christians in the early Rome, it was their, their morality, their, their view of marriage, and the lack of sexual appetite that their culture around, that was one of the things that drew, drew people to them. And, and I think Christians, we, we probably are at a watershed moment culturally as well, as they were. So I don't know if that answered your question or if I kind of went around about it, but I haven't looked into that specific question, but that's how I would respond. Yes?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think a lot of time, you know, anybody who views pornography at a, at a you know, regular clip will tell you that it has escalated, that it always escalates, you know, to where even, you know, just the, the, the genres and the types of porn are pushing towards younger and younger, you know, some of the pop, most popular search engine or searches are, you know, teens, 18-year-olds, you know, all the, and those are the mild terms for some of the stuff that they're searching for, basically younger looking younger, younger, which would then drive into viewing, which would fuels abuse um, in, in that regard. How it relates, I, I don't know enough to answer that with, with certainty or confidence. Uh, it's not something I've, I've looked too much into, but I am, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, I, 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 would, I would argue there's probably a connection. I just don't know for sure, and I don't want to answer something I don't know. I mean, they're, they're learning about it. It's just, are they going to learn it from us, or are they going to learn it from, from other places? Thank you for, for doing that. I imagine that's a tough field to be a Christian in. Yeah, I've got that as one of the resources, too. That I'll, yeah, I found that one to be good. Uh, and they're usually, I mean, they're, they're very safe and uh, very accessible. What's that? I don't know. Uh, they've revamped their website recently. I think in the last six months I've noticed some changes there. But there may be. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I heard Clay, their director, speak uh, just about how he's marketing to, to young people, uh, just Good people doing good things and recognizing the evil that it is, and so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Heard half of that um, about parents and a child walking. Mm. Right. Right. You know, just as, <laughs> and not and not shying away from these things. Like my son, you know, I've got a six and a four-year-old, and you know, boys' bodies will react when you know, go in the bathroom or whatever, and they just start laughing. But not not ignoring them, like, oh, we don't talk about that. But just like you know, just child appropriate, and knowing my kids well enough to know this is when you know this is appropriate for them. Uh, but, but just like your, <laughs> I have a, a sister, a half sister who was pregnant before getting married, and which you know, my kids always associate marriage and pregnancy together. And, um, and so they were at the table, and like, yeah, 
you know, America had her, you know, was, was very pregnant. She had her baby two months after she uh, got married and she had the baby. And, and, and Coach like, how is that possible? They weren't even married when they were pregnant. And Raph's like, no, you can get pregnant before your, before your marriage. She goes, oh. And we're just letting them have this conversation and not stopping it. And then, and then Coach is like, oh, I, I'm just not going to kiss them. And I want to get pregnant before I'm married. Just like associating <laughs> kissing with pregnancy and, you know, and just kind of, you know, and le- just letting them talk about it and not being afraid of talking about it. And then as they get older, kind of walking them through it. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just how we've, we've chosen. Again, I'm, I'm not an a- expert on how to have these conversations. I'm just a dad and, a, you know, my wife's a mom of, of young kids and we're, struggling through it, but it's something I'm going to lean into because I've seen the effects if we don't. Uh, we can't ignore it, and so I'm going to awkwardly walk through it uh, as best I can and, and lean in on prayer and the Lord's mercy, and, and Lord willing, his story will win out. So there was a question over here I thought I saw a hand, maybe not. No. Any other questions? It'll get more practical next week. Um, so, uh, so thank you. I appreciate uh, yeah, everybody's attention and being here. I don't have anything else. Great.